disinformation in Solomon Islands. In the weeks following the riots, CCP officials were also active in pushing the narrative that foreign forces with ulterior motives were aiming to smear the relationship between Solomon Islands and China. India-Australia relations. This has caused some confusion in the West. You know, how do Western partners make sense of A, on one hand, India being part of the Quad, and B, on the other hand, you know, India going to the SEO summit recently or India abstaining at the UN? Repatriation of women and children from Syria. It's most likely that the women would be arrested or detained upon arrival at the airport. That's what we've seen in Germany, in France, for example. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the ASTU podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. Following the November 2021 Honiara riots, the Chinese Communist Party pushed false narratives in coordinated information operations in an attempt to shape Solomon Islands' public perception and to undermine the country's relationships with Australia and the United States. To discuss this, David Rowe speaks to Blake Johnson, lead author of ASPI's groundbreaking new report on the CCP's information operations in Solomon Islands. I'm here with Blake Johnson. Blake, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you're, uh, you're in Taiwan at the moment. It's uh, never a dull moment in the life of Blake. No, absolutely not. Um, quarantine's been good though. You're getting through it. So congratulations, first of all, on the report. It's a fascinating piece of work. Listeners uh, will want to check it out if they can. They can see it at www.aspi.org.au. I'm just going to start, Blake, by asking you a bit about the research, the context of it. The report indicates the Chinese government has managed to deflect or neutralise some of the negative feeling towards it in Solomon Islands around two key events. Now, most of the followers of politics and international affairs, as I'm sure ASPI podcast listeners are, will likely remember these events. But just set the context for us. Remind us what was happening around the two periods you were looking at. Absolutely. So, yeah, as you said, there was two key events that we looked at in this report. The first of those was the November 2021 Honiara riots. And the second of those was the leaked security agreement that happened between Solomon Islands and China late in March this year. In both of those events, the CCP was attempting to influence public discourse in Solomon Islands. They used coordinated information operations to spread false narratives and suppress information that was contradictory to their message. These messages had a particularly strong focus in both events on undermining Solomon Islands' existing partnerships with Australia and the US. So really, they were seeking to capitalise on these local events to spread anti-Western messages and distract from some of the criticism that was aimed towards China during these times. Mm. So tell us a bit about the messages. What were they actually, what were they promoting? What ideas were they promoting? How were they doing it? So the first narrative that we looked at uh, regarding the Honiara riots, and this is where we kind of kick-started our focus on Solomon Islands in particular, was that the CCP was seeking to blame Australia, the US, and for a brief moment, Taiwan as well, for instigating the riots. In the weeks following the riots, CCP officials were also active in pushing the narrative that foreign forces with ulterior motives were aiming to smear the relationship between Solomon Islands and China. In the second event we investigated in response to the leaked security agreement, the CCP pushed a narrative that Australia and the US were interfering in Solomon Islands affairs, they were colonialist, threatening and bullying, and they had no genuine interest in supporting the country's development. 
this narrative wasn't exclusively used after the security agreement was leaked, but the frequency of these accusations through CCP, party state media and official statements increased dramatically around the leaking of the security agreement. So the first one in particular about uh, Australia, US, Taiwan actually instigating riots, I mean, that one in particular seems outlandish, but um, I'm interested to know, I mean, how, how were those messages received by the, the, by the Solomon Islands population? What, what sort of sentiment did you detect? Yeah, so there's two main ways that we looked at measuring the impact of these narratives and what they were doing online in Solomon Islands. The first of these was to look at the level of penetration and engagement that CCP activity generated online, primarily through Facebook. And then the second was to measure the effectiveness of these messages in shifting public sentiment. So that first aspect of the penetration and engagement, we found that CCP party state media articles and Facebook posts by the MC actually had quite low penetration and engagement, even though they were pushing out a report every second day in party state media. They were rarely getting shared online and, and rarely being engaged with by Solomon Islands population. When they were, the comments were mostly quite negative towards China. However, on the other avenue, I guess, that the CCP was pushing this message was using their diplomats and CCP officials in Solomon Islands to publish opinion pieces and make press statements, get directly quoted in local news pieces to push this message even further. And by leveraging the trust in local news outlets, they spread their messages further online and generated deeper engagement. You mentioned Facebook. Um, why is that a useful indicator barometer of sentiment in Seoul? So this report looks exclusively at the online information environment as where we're messaging. Obviously, Facebook is only a subset of the population responding to these messages. Uh, but it's an area that we've seen the CCP be very active in globally, pushing certain narratives, particularly anti-Western narratives. We saw that in response to the Ukraine invasion as well, where they pushed out across Twitter and Facebook across the globe, these anti-Western narratives. So we're trying to get a read of how that also plays out in areas like the Pacific. And Facebook is the social media platform of choice for Solomon Islands, is that correct? Absolutely. So Facebook across the region and in Solomon Islands, for some people, is the whole internet. It's the only thing that they really use. So the second part of understanding how this impacted the Solomon Islands population was to measure the effectiveness of these information operations online. To do that, we conducted a categorical sentiment analysis of Facebook commentary on all articles relating to these security issues, whether they were published by CCP state media, officials, local journalists, or republished content from Western media outlets. We found that overall, most of the comments were negative towards China and negative towards the Solomon Islands government. A large proportion of those against the local government were also critical of government corruption and the relationship with China. But measuring this sentiment over time for both of these case studies, we saw a decrease in the level of anti-Chinese sentiment linking up with the higher levels of engagement and penetration that were seen in official-led articles in local media. We saw that after the U.S. Embassy visited Solomon Islands in April, a press statement that criticised U.S. activities and behaviour in the region from the CCP saw a significant drop in anti-China sentiment and a large increase in anti-Western sentiment online. This strongly correlated with the trend observed across the broad spectrum of information channels that we collected from. 
And most importantly, digging deeper into these comments, we could see that some of the language used in these anti-Western messages aligned very closely with what people were beginning to say online. So the reasonable conclusion to draw was that China, through these narratives, was at least somewhat successful in sort of blunting or neutralising some of that negative sentiment. Absolutely. That's what we did start to see, particularly after the leaked security agreement and with the, the picking up of this language being used by China in the colonialist threatening that sort of language around the US. They were effectively shifting public discourse on those issues and distracting away from some of the concerns people had about the security agreement itself. Right. So, look, many listeners might think, isn't this just what governments do? Doesn't Australia try to get its message out through its embassy, through official statements, through op-eds, comments from the government or ministers? Don't all countries do this? I mean, why should we be worried about this particular kind of activity? How is it different? So it is routine for governments to message about their activities in foreign countries and to even make statements and write opinion pieces in, in local news outlets. But what sets these messages apart is the, the underlying falsehoods being pushed by the CCP, particularly in regards to instigating the Hamiara riots. Another area of growing concern in the Pacific is the pressure that's being placed on local media institutions and journalists to only publish articles that conform with the CCP's message. So there's been a growing body of evidence of this occurring elsewhere in the Pacific. Journalists in PNG was quite open about it on blog post, and there's been reports of it occurring across Fiji and Tonga as well, that the CCP is pressuring these local media outlets to only publish statements that portray them in a good light. This sort of activity is not okay for governments to do. Right. Okay. So, so you've sort of got two. I mean, as well as the uh, the false narrative issue, which you've documented in detail here and demonstrated how that, or at least indicated how that has affected sentiment and changed sentiment over time, in the sense of the the, the decreasing negativity towards uh, the Chinese government and the increasing positivity, and also increasing negativity towards the West. As a separate but related issue, uh, you've also pointed to the the activities of the the Chinese embassy there and the Chinese government in trying to control and in some cases intimidate journalists into not running uh, the types of um, stories or portrayals of issues that are not in the interest of the Chinese government. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's an area that Australia can do more on to help in the Pacific is to build resilience to that kind of pressure. Right, yeah. I mean, we pride ourselves on obviously on uh, being a partner of choice. It's something that Australia talks about quite a lot. How do we support Solomon Islands and others in the Pacific and, and how do we work with our partners to help them deal with this kind of disinformation and propaganda? So Australia already does a lot to help Pacific media through the Pacific Media Assistance Scheme, but there's always more that can be done. The Pacific Islands struggle financially to keep media outlets going but Australia can provide further support for the hiring, training and retaining high quality professional journalists. Doing that will help build that resilience to the external pressure that we're starting to see from Chinese embassies. All right, Blake, look, um, I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for making the time to talk to us and congratulations again on the report. Thank you. 
With India's Foreign Minister Jaishankar due to visit Australia in the coming days, Barney Growell asks Professor Ian Hall for his assessment on how India sees its relationship with Australia and the role of Foreign Minister Jaishankar in shaping Australia-India relations. They also discuss India's relationships with China and Russia, including Modi's comments to Putin at the recent SEO summit. Thanks, Ian, for joining us today on ASPI's podcast. It's a pleasure. Given that the Indian Foreign Minister, Dr. Jaishankar, is going to visit Australia this week, I just wanted to start by talking a bit about the growth in the Australia-India relationship, especially post-2020. What do you think has driven that growth? Well, there's been lots of factors driving the relationship forward. Since 2020, obviously, uh, the relationship's been very much overshadowed by COVID and also by growing tensions with China, whether that's for Australia with economic coercion or whether it's for India with the presence of PLA troops uh, up on the northern uh, line of actual control with India. Those two sets of concerns have driven the relationship closer, as has attempts to draw the, the quad countries together as well, so involving Japan and the United States too. So since 2020, we have seen an exceptional growth. But how do you think India sees the Australian relationship given the first iteration of the Quad that was attempted back in 2008 and Australia, or there's a lot of debate about this, but it is accepted that Australia did pull out at that time. So how do you think India sees Australia? I think India's views of Australia have been really transformed over the last 20 years and even just in the last 10 or so. Very low levels of mutual understanding, very, very low levels of interaction, uh, very few uh, politicians going backwards and forwards, very few official visits, uh, very few official conversations that were happening beyond just the regular diplomatic missions in both countries, really until almost the 2010s. And since then, there's been a very concerted effort to start to have conversations, to start to understand each other's strategic situations, their perceptions of the regions, as well as try to work out some of the things that we could do together cooperatively to manage some of the shared problems that we face across the region. And that, that whole process means that today, New Delhi understands Australia and also understands what Australia can offer it and the region more broadly much better than it, it did just a few years ago. And given that Jay Shankar is visiting Australia now the second time in one year, which is quite extraordinary for an Indian foreign minister, I don't think that's ever happened. No, uh, not before. to my knowledge, it hasn't happened. No. So what has uh, Jay Shankar's personal role been in the growth of the Indian relationship with Australia, but not just Australia, but the Quad, United States more broadly? Jay Shankar has emerged as as the dominant figure shaping and driving Indian strategy under the Modi government, which was elected in back in May 2014. Jai Shankar comes in to run the foreign ministry in 2015, and right from the beginning of his tenure, he starts to give much more clarity to Indian strategy, starts to set out a roadmap for India to improve its relationships with key players. That includes the United States, includes Japan, includes Australia as well, and starts to also define a new China policy after a period in which India had really, I think, drifted and where it wasn't entirely clear what India was trying to achieve in each one of those major uh, state relationships. So especially on the China policy, there was an attempt by the Modi administration two times to actually you know, meet with Xi, try to talk out 
some of the issues in the relationship. And then, of course, we know in 2020, the India-China border clashes, which actually resulted in the deaths of Indian troops. What was the shift there? If you say that Jay Shankar tried to bring in, you know, a clearer China policy, but post-2020, how did you see that shift? I think if, if I could just go back a little bit earlier than that, if we look at what happened in 2014 itself, there was a very mixed strategy being used. And that was a continuation of what India had been doing for some time, which was to charm China to a degree, to bring in Chinese investment, to build the economic relationship, but at the same time to draw some red lines around some issues, particularly in the security area and particularly around the line of actual control. And that approach didn't work particularly well. So Xi Jinping's visit to India, which was a very kind of glitzy, dramatic affair in 2014, was overshadowed by an intrusion by the PLA across the line of actual control, which was then publicised at the time. What happens after that, year after year, really, is this pattern of China trying to press India whenever it looks like it's, India is doing something that China doesn't, doesn't want. What happens when, once Chai Shanki comes in is that the language around dealing with China, the language that uses for describing China and its challenges, changes. And so we start to see India accepting the notion of a rules-based order, for example, and that rules-based order language comes in 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 early 2015 and then is carried forward and and elaborated on in Indian policy after that. So it's that kind of sense of just clarifying the messaging that is really important about Jai Shankar's contribution, as well as crafting these, these major power relationships in ways that are positive to India. That's really interesting. And do you think that language also can be seen in some of the Quad statements? There's a lot of scrutiny of the Quad statements that come out, given India's reluctance to sort of openly criticize China. Do you see that language now sort of becoming Indian standard practice? Absolutely. I think the the language just becomes much more consistent from the beginning of 2015. You see a vision document being published between the United States during Barack Obama's visit for Republic Day in in India. And that vision document talks about uh, a free and open Indo-Pacific and about a rules-based order in the region and about things like freedom of navigation and overflight and all of these things that have been core American concerns. And India takes some of that language, adapts that language, adds some phrases of its own. So it wants to emphasize inclusivity, that a regional order must be inclusive of all players, including China. These, so it gives its own tweaks to this, but I think India recognized at that time that this was a useful language that it could use when it comes to managing China, and that, that also there was a value to having a consistent language across various different partners, that it, it, it signaled to Beijing that each one of these partners' thinking was similar and that their approach to managing relations with Beijing could be expected to be similar. So I just want to now move towards... India's relationship with Russia, which has, of course, been in the news given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So in my perception, India has taken steps to move away from its defense dependency on Russia, sort of promoting its own homegrown industry, diversifying its defense supply chains, looking towards new partners like the United States, France, and Israel. But at the same time, India's reluctance to openly condemn Russia Recently, at the UN, uh, India abstained from a resolution openly condemning Ru- uh, Russia's actions in Ukraine. This has caused some confusion in the West. You know, how do Western partners make sense of a on one hand, India being part of the Quad, 
and be on the other hand, you know, India going to the SEO summit recently or India abstaining at the UN. What is sort of India's thinking on this somewhat contradictory foreign policy, but not so much as well from New Delhi's perspective? Right. So, I mean, India's relationship with, with Russia is longstanding, but over time it's got thinner and thinner and thinner. So it was once when when Russia and the Soviet Union was existed, there was a relationship that was very broad based and it was economic and it was also about buying defense equipment and there was a lot of diplomatic interaction between the two. Now today, really, that relationship has is quite attenuated, and India remains dependent on on Russia for defense systems because obviously once you've bought those, you tend to keep them for thirty or fifty years, and so they're not things that you can change very very easily. So it's dependent there for those systems, for its for maintenance, for ammunition, for parts, for all of these sorts of things. There are other little bits and bobs of the relationship that remain important. So civilian nuclear cooperation is important, for example. And India, in a kind of you know, grand strategic vision, would like to see Russia remain a reasonably powerful pole in the international system, in a multipolar order. And it doesn't really want to see Russia becoming a kind of subordinate ally of China either, because that really wouldn't be in India's interests. So for all of those reasons, India's wanted to tread a very fine line on Russia, not wanting to offend Moscow too much, but at the same time also not wanting to offend its Western partners and friends either. And in that sense, India is not actually that unusual. We tend to point the finger at India because India is a big, big player. And at the moment, it's also a temporary member of the Security Council. But in fact, India's stance is not that different from Indonesia's position, for example, or some of the other Southeast Asian states. You know, we shouldn't really expect India to take a very strong stand against Russia. And do you see, given, for example, Prime Minister Modi's visit to the, for the SEO summit and his comments to Putin, where he said, you know, I've told you previously on the phone and this is not the time for war. So do you see a shift there or do you see it is being part of India's policy, you know, sort of treading the fine line and... Do you think that's still possible, given? I think they're still trending a fine line. Mm. There is a slight shift there in the language that was used, in the fact that it was done in a public forum. And generally speaking, Indian prime ministers don't publicly criticise other leaders in press conferences or in those kinds of appearances. So when they do it, and Modi had done that before with Xi Jinping as well, but when, they, when he did it in this context with Modi, I think he was definitely sending a message to, to Moscow but it hasn't gone any way to appeasing the, the critics in the West that would like India to take this very strong moral stance against, against Russia. But in the end, India is concerned about its own interests, its own survival, its own position in the region. Yes, and I think that's hard for sort of Western partners to understand, especially I think for Australia and the United States, that are so used to working within an alliance framework. And given India is not an ally, but it's still an important partner, you can't expect India to act like an ally. But I think there needs to be some level of comfort of dealing with partners like India. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think we also need to recognize, too, that we don't want to see India weakened in any way. Cutting it off from a major defense supplier overnight would would be really quite problematic for India. And a weaker India would not necessarily be able to stand up to Beijing in the way that we might like it to do. So we also need to be a little bit more cold about the calculation of our own interests uh, a little bit like Delhi has been doing in recent years. All right. Thanks so much, Ian. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. 
In other major news this week, media outlets have been reporting that the Australian government is planning the repatriation of Australian women and children from camps in Syria. I speak to Katia Theodorakis about the risks and policy challenges associated with repatriation and the lessons learned from international partners. Recently, it was reported that the Australian government would repatriate Australian families of Islamic State members from Syria. 16 women and 42 children have been held in Syria for over three years since the collapse of ISIS in March 2019. It is a wicked problem. On the one hand, we have some women who knowingly went to Syria to support a known terrorist organisation. On the other hand, we have some women who are groomed and tricked and many children who were taken by parents or even born there. There is no easy solution. There are risks to bringing the women home, but also risks in not doing anything and leaving them there. It certainly seems from media reports that intelligence and security agencies are now advising that operations can be carried out to extract the Australians and that a combination of reintegration, monitoring and arrests can reduce risks to Australians at home. With all these risks and challenges, it is my pleasure to talk to Katia Theodorakis, head of ASPE's counter-terrorism program, who has been following this issue closely. Katia, can you start by telling us about the significance of this potential move to repatriate Australian women and children? Sure, Olivia, and it's really important to to look at this because it comes at a at a significant time also internationally. Obviously, we've had this debate for a while that what we should be doing, whether it's our obligation or not. And the fact that this has happened now, I think, warrants that we look closely at why this may be happening. So the security conditions have been deteriorating in the camps quite significantly, and maybe that's not top of the headlines in Australia, but it's quite significant in terms of destabilisation and having that breeding ground again for IS to, to make a resurgence in the region, and especially those countries that are closer to it geographically. I think they're quite concerned about this. At the same time, there has been a push also from the legal front, for example, the um, European Court of Human Rights has been putting pressure on. They've recently reached a verdict in some cases and also national courts as well as the United States have been putting increasing pressure on their partners to finally do something that this situation wasn't tenable. So do we have an obligation to bring these families home? The children are blameless, but the women have varying degrees of culpability. How do you assess our moral obligations versus our security obligations? Yeah, that's a really good distinction. I think from the legal angle, a legal scholar would probably tell you that it may be an obligation if we abide by the norms of international law, but we can't be forced to do this. It's not binding, but at the same time, there has been a lot of pressure on Australia to in, in this international community to abide by those laws and obligations, especially the right of the child and these special rapporteurs by the UN, like this independent body of experts, have put pressure on Australia to say this is this is the only law-conforming response. And there has been a lot of understanding, I think, initially, especially for countries that are in that closer proximity where attacks have happened, like France or, or Belgium, where the risk was a lot greater to give them time to set up their responses. But I think Australia has had enough time now also with our temporary exclusion orders that were designed in part at least, to, to buy us time that we have to look at this when we make this decision or when this decision is being made to look at this holistically. Yes, there is a security imperative there, obviously. So when we look at this um, in terms of moral obligation versus security obligations, I think it's it's beneficial to to combine this, to look at this sort of as an aggregate decision and try to balance this out, that we look at the overall strategic effects of a decision to either repatriate or not repatriate and how we go about this in terms of operational tempo and also who we repatriate. Because 
We could say that it's a nice thing to have a humanitarian impulse or human rights impulse driving us, but what's the good of that if Australians come to harm and there will be an increase in, in attacks domestically? But at the same time, it may also, if by not doing that, we may increase the terror risk regionally or globally and we're not abiding by our obligations and the commitments we've made to, to this international community of states. And so by working together and also by seeking the support that's been offered in terms of what can be done to safely repatriate them, to get them out, I think that's how good decisions are made in looking at this from an aggregate perspective because that's the best way to actually calculate risk, not just in the short term but also long term and strategically. So you kind of touched on this, but I guess moving on, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how do we actually do this? There's been a lot of debate already um, around managing these security risks. Do you think the operation can be carried out safely? I mean, ultimately, that's that's the assessment of our security agencies. And we can have confidence that it would have done their due diligence. They would have taken the utmost care in doing that because that's a great responsibility. And we wouldn't want any Australians to come to harm, obviously, during such an operation. But I think precedent is that it has been done before. A lot of assistance has been offered by, for example, the United States, logistical support, the Syrian Democratic Forces or the de facto government that's unrecognized, but de facto government that's that's on the ground. They're managing those camps. They have offered any assistance they can. That sometimes comes with some strings attached. I think they would like to get some more recognition for that. So that's a political angle to consider diplomatically, but I'm sure that can be managed as well. But previous instances have shown there have been no fatalities or anything, no no incidents. And I think when our most important security partner, the US, assures us that they would assist us, I think that's something we wouldn't be questioning. And for example, just overnight, some news came in that Germany did another repatriation operation and the German foreign minister was thanking the Syrian Democratic Forces for making this possible in very adverse circumstances. And they also thanked the US for their logistical support. And it turned out that the women were brought home on a um, transport plane via airbase in Kuwait, for example. And I think there's also, they will get taken out of that camp in northeastern Syria first and maybe taken to a neighboring country like Turkey. There'll be further assessments, possibly DNA testing or whatever else hasn't been done yet, further assessments to see if they're safe to travel, medical assessments. They would have done their due diligence in terms of the, um, the risk screening. But we're talking about traumatized children here, and they're most likely ill, both physically and mentally, and the women as well. So I think that first cohort especially, that was assessed in the highest risk of vulnerability. I don't think we have to worry about security risks after they've been out of the camp, but that it's just that's moving very quickly into that next phase of getting them reintegrated. So, so let's say that they are returned. What happens firstly in terms of the law and prosecutions? Additionally, what, what risks do these citizens pose upon returning to Australia? So you've, you've mentioned kind of, you know, there's going to be additional layers of screening before they even get here. But how do we mitigate the risks, though? Interested in your thoughts on how you've, you've just mentioned it now, how you approach children in particular. Do we see them as, as radicalised, as traumatised? Would you envisage a situation where some children may need to be removed from their parents once they're repatriated? Yeah, really important questions again. So going again by president from other countries, it's most likely that the women would be arrested or detained upon arrival at the airport. That's what we've seen in Germany, in France, for example. And in Australia, there are also reports that there's certainly a, a number of the women would be arrested, especially for the declared area offences. That's an easy one to charge people with. And there has been one of the issues 
of why repatriation, there has been this reluctance and, and hesitancy to repatriate is that there's a lack of prosecutable evidence initially. But I think that has been addressed by buying ourselves time in other European nations, for example, they have moved more creatively to look at other charges rather than just counterterrorism charges. They've looked to international criminal law, such as war crimes. There's a range of things, also neglect of children. So it's gone from not just a criminal justice system, but a family court system. So some of the IS women right away, they were, they were charged with support of a terrorist organization, but also neglect from a family law perspective of taking their children to a war zone where a known terror group was operating and in control. So we could expect that our security and law enforcement agencies had ample time to prepare and look at those charges. So um, anyone who can be charged and has been assessed at a risk, there would be action to follow. And we, we should also keep in mind that these women have agreed to undergo control orders, which is quite significant because they're very restrictive measures. They've been heralded, for example, by our former Home Affairs Minister Karen Andrews as a vital tool to keep Australians safe, these control orders, when she was seeking to justify their continued existence, because they're quite controversial in terms of how intrusive they are. Um, And in terms of children? So it's an interesting one. Of course, children are predominantly seen as victims, but at the same time, we can't preclude that there's also a level of perpetratorhood, so to speak. So maybe it's helpful to look at this in terms of child soldiers. Any child that's been taken to a war zone and or trafficked there or has been abducted, they're seen as victims first and all, but it doesn't mean that they can't also have this double, I wouldn't say identity, but this double role. But they still need to be treated first and foremost as victims and the other issues will get addressed subsequently. We can't treat them as perpetrators first, especially when they haven't been tried for anything. I think we need to uphold the rule of law here. And the way this is done is there's a bit of a staggered approach in terms of age to a certain age group. And this is according to the UN Convention of the Child. And also our independent national security legislation monitor has pointed that out, that that's something to go by, that under a certain age, that first gap they're just seen as victims. And then when you get closer to that age of criminal culpability, that's when you start looking at this quite differently. But the experience from other countries and the experts have stressed that we should never get those two mixed up. They're victims first and foremost, which doesn't mean they can't also have been perpetrators. But in helping them, it's the trauma that comes first that needs to be addressed. And then some of the security layers, they get built into the approach. It's uh, it's such a complex issue and clearly, you know, again, a need kind of for international cooperation on these issues. This policy challenge isn't unique to Australia and you've already kind of touched on a little bit, you know, the different responses from Europe. But I guess, can you tell us a little bit more about how other countries, including European countries, are managing the issue and are there lessons to be learned from Australia? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it makes sense to look to our democratic partners here because many other nations have also repatriated. and But some of them, they have put no layers of security there whatsoever. I think it's important to see how that gets reconciled with an approach that has a firm focus on the rule of law, on trying to bring justice also to the victims, because I could imagine that there is immense concern amongst refugee communities, for example, that they would be seeing a perpetrator walk down the street, which apparently has happened in Germany with the Yazidis. And so that's why Germany moved quite quickly on that legal plane to to see what could be done. And that also that it sends a very clear message that an effective approach to counterterrorism isn't just hard security measures. It's also about bringing justice and and making a statement and a concerted effort to bring those and let that, that really heavy force of the rule of law come down and that it actually works. I think that needs to be considered as a foundational pillar of that. And so 
that's I think that's a really interesting precedent to look at also what I've mentioned before with the family courts, that it's an integrated, a comprehensive approach, but it must be informed, especially with the children, by the, the well-being and the best interest of the child, which means first and foremost addressing the trauma that most certainly is there and having a different risk assessment for that common radicalization, de-radicalization approach, I think it's not helpful to look at it in that because if a child comes back from a war zone and starts playing with the toys to kind of process and acts out the violence they've seen, that's not a signal of radicalization in that sense. From what I understand, experts are saying that's a way of processing trauma. So there have to be a different set of risk assessment. And, and as we get more data from other countries, there will be a data set to build on and do more research on this. But so far from what we've seen, this comprehensive approach with trauma focused as the key emphasis there and the security sort of following on from that, that's the way to go. That sounds like there's, uh, there's a, lot, a lot of lessons to be learned already and, and a lot of work ahead for your program. Just to finish up, I'd like to shift back to the Middle East for a moment if we can. Can you tell us a little bit more about the situation with ISIS in the camps? What's going on there? How active is ISIS and how much of a threat is ISIS still? Yeah, and that's, that's an interesting one. It's coming back to where we started, that it has this operation, I think, or this new impetus momentum has also been sparked by the deteriorating situation. So it looks like ISIS is looking to really capitalise on those prison and camp populations. That's sort of the last remnant of their caliphate, and that's also what they're telling their followers. And there's been a massive fundraising effort, for example, with lots of money flowing into those camps to the so-called victims that have just been deserted. I've been following this a little bit in Germany and also other countries, raising 7,000 euros, for example, per person to get them out of the camps. They then sort of get smuggled out. They possibly hide in Italy province, which poses a challenge for the de facto government there, which is under control of Amhaya Tahrir al-Sham, former al-Qaeda affiliate, that they're cracking down really hard on those IS continuing spotters and especially the women are, are said to be playing a key role because it's easier to get to them in the camps rather than to the radicalized prison po- populations. We've seen a siege early on in the year, a prison siege, and where IS tried to jailbreak, tried to get supporters out. That's been really concerning. And there's been plans for more. The Syrian Democratic Forces, they've really cracked down. They've had a two-faced operation, security operation in the camps, which has met with quite a bit of resistance by IS including a, an attempted suicide attack in a whole camp only a few weeks ago. So it looks like they're really trying to rebuild and their their target supporter base is in those camps. So that's another reason why we can't just look at this and go, no, this is we have indefinite def- detention here. That's great because it keeps Australians safe. Everything's good on the national security front because this will just spill over into some bigger issues. And then we're not in control then of the strategic environment, the earlier you do it, we can shape this. And seeing those developments and how ICE has been trying to capitalize on this and rebuilding makes the timing of this repatriation even more urgent now. Yeah, it sounds like there's you know, this severe risks of us leaving them there as well. Absolutely. And that's, again, that comes back to this long-term perspective that's strategically informed, that, we, that lens that we should apply here. I think, uh, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today, Katia, but definitely uh, plenty left to discuss on another day. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That's a wrap on this episode. This week, you heard conversations with David Rowe, Director of Strategic Communications at ASPE, and Blake Johnson, Analyst with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, Barney Graywell, Analyst with ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre, and Professor Ian Hall, 
Professor of International Relations and Acting Director of Research at the Griffith Asia Institute. And with myself and Katia Theodorakis, Head of ASPE's Counterterrorism Program. Thanks for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon.